Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me on the other line, she too brings fake Jesuits to all her important meetings. <laughs> it's Danielle Hanley. Oh, it is true, but we are not alone. <laughs> it's a good thing we have John Keller. He can play your fake Jesuit. Um, Shoutouts to Keller. Shoutouts to Keller, for sure. Joining us on the other line, even though the French bread pizza is too hot, but she's taken a bite anyway, it's Lily Gorin. Hey, good to Lily, my, welcome my back mouth is burned now, but... <laughs> <laughs> And yet you still signed up for some wild podcasting hours. Really (laughs) impressive. Of course. Oh, my God. Um, listen, that French bread pizza situation, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but like, it made me sad for everybody involved. <laughs> I had so much French bread pizza growing up in the 90s. Um, so that's a, that's an extended nostalgia. It's not a thing. It wasn't a thing in the Hanley house. We were not eating French bread pizza. We were eating pizza from the pizza place or Elio's. <laughs> like, Elio's was a big part of the 90s in the Hanley House. The, the French bread pizza I, I had, I had it when I was younger, um, but I didn't like it. It was, it was very lame. Yeah. It's so much bread. It's, it's so much bread, and it's also, like, bread that gets soggy in the <laughs> oven, which and is, it's like... Hot. Why are we eating this? As Henry learned. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> After being warned, for the record. And Matthew reprimanded him. <laughs> like, that's some true cop shit for Matthew. That's him internalizing and projecting his dad back to Henry. Oh, my God. That's right. I had not even thought of that, but that is right. And that is, like, also scary. <laughs> oh, my God. There's some early gloss happening yeah. in this episode. Don't worry. We'll get back there. Um, should we get into this episode? I suppose Absolutely. so. So we are talking about Americans, season four, episode five, Clark's Place, written by Peter Ackerman, directed by Noah Emmerich, and Danielle, what is our IMDb summary? IMDb summary is, Philip must consider his life with Martha and make a crushing choice from which there is no coming back. It's like, I, there couldn't be a less descriptive episode summary if they tried. It's also wrong. And yeah, like, this 100% is wrong. Know, no, no spoilers. But like his choice has to come in future episodes, not in this episode. Like, listen, I'm hoping that his choice is like, we get to kill Martha. <laughs> this is Danielle's longest running take is that Martha should die. So it's not that I like want her as a human to die. You're it's claiming just like, that the logic of the show show is yes she... narratively she's gotta go <laughs> everyone's like we're not saying anything <laughs> i just feel like it's Leaving getting that one there listen i felt like it was getting closer at the end of season three we didn't get there we're getting there and i am i am here for us getting there <laughs> <laughs> but we're not there yet <laughs> we are not, not there, there yet because we have this episode which um is Lily, I think you described it as a moving pieces around episode. Do you want to say why that's the case? Or like whether you think the show gets beyond just moving people and things around? Well, I think that in this episode, you do see a lot of sort of like a step forward here in the Martha um, plot line. You have a step forward with regard to Paige and Pastor Tim 
and the whole family's relationship with Pastor Tim and Alice. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, a step forward with Stan and Philip um, reuniting as friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and you have you have uh, an interesting dynamic with regard to Gabriel and Elizabeth and Philip yes. in terms of um, what to do about Martha um, in this situation because they're sort of weighing various options. Yeah, and I think if we consider all of those relationships, all of those plot points, Lily, it's like the the idea that came into my brain for this episode is that like this is a sh- episode in which people are being moved around or moving themselves around where the show is calling attention to how that moving around like just furthers the disintegration of all of their lives, their psyches, their relationships, their like work situations. If we think about Martha or even think about Philip and Elizabeth um, or Pastor Tim and Alice as well. And not just disintegration, the Cure album, but disintegration <laughs> in a psychic manner because I had to get an 80s Cure reference in to one of their two best albums. We can debate. Agree. Fully agree. And yeah. also impressed that, that like it only took you six minutes to get that uh Look, that reference it's, in. It's it's in the notes. Um it was my like <laughs> it's in my notes, I should say. It was yeah. my I literally wrote down disintegration and I was like LOL cure joke immediately after writing that when I was rewatching this last night. So F- oh. favorite disintegration song on from the cure? Either Oh of you. I don't know that I hmm. I have to think about that. Okay. Me too. Circle back. Yeah, it's plain song or pictures of you. Um, plain song is just brilliant, and pictures of you will make me cry every single time. So it's like ball and weep uncontrollably. <laughs> and thank you for and joining us what, for a Cure Talk. <laughs> what can be? What can be? Uh, we have a witness to this, which is uh, I definitely cried my ass off when uh, they played that when Regan and I saw the Cure this summer. So listen, I believe it. And you know, Danielle, here you know I, you know I just want to do an hour on the cure. Or something. I I know, and I'm like, I want to indulge you, but also we're here to talk about the Americans. But maybe <laughs> we? we, Lily, <laughs> welcome to season four, yeah, which we- goes off the rails so quickly every episode, and <laughs> I mean, we like pride ourselves in it. <laughs> Speaking of disintegration, there was, a, there, was, there was a good needle drop at the end of the episode. No, this needle drop was amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, we can debate that when we get to Bard Nostalgia. I actually am annoyed by it. <laughs> Are you, okay. I got to write a question down and then we can get back into it. <laughs> I mean, the big point is they, it's like, okay, it's one of the best Queen songs, one of the worst Bowie songs. Like, you know, we can, we yes, can, sure. we can feel that for that later. Sure. I guess we start with Martha, right? Given Danielle's emphasis on Martha's impending question mark death, uh, <laughs> doom. Uh, so Lily, like, what is your read on, Martha's emotional state and like, so Danielle and I were thinking about it in terms of this is an episode where like Martha is constantly being acted upon, but not like being provided the ability to like act on her own behalf or or that like every attempt to do that is like frustrated for her. So what's your kind of read of what Martha's up to in this episode? I mean, I think that's, I think that's apt um, because what we see from Martha is she's sitting, waiting, or she's mm-hmm. standing, waiting, mm-hmm. um, or she's standing, looking around so that she's not even actually moving very much. She's, yeah. she's kind of, um, static, um, in, in that regard. And, and, and she is, she's like taking in information and trying to think about it. And she's, she, I think understands what's going on, but she doesn't necessarily <laughs> want to 
want to understand it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so every place that she turns to try to grab hold of something, um, she's, she is, she's kind of, uh, blocked in a certain sense because it's just like, oh, that's another piece of the puzzle that fits into the puzzle. Yeah. And, and she's not dumb. So she's, you know, she sort of willfully pushed a lot of this out of her head, but now it's all coming back and taking shape. And I think she understands what's going on. Um, and she's also, she loves Clark. One, I think that you're absolutely right on that, that like, she's not dumb, but she has like pushed so much out and she's like, will, she had been willfully ignorant for so long, which to me was incredibly frustrating to watch happen. And like, I think the thing that's like incredibly interesting about that is like, I'm sure there are people in all of our lives that we watch sort of like participate in a kind of willful ignorance to their detriment and like, that that is frustrating to see unfold over someone that you're like, you're way more intelligent than this one. I think the other thing I would just add, Lily, is I think you're right that like so much of this episode is Martha being static. And in the moments where she's not static, right, where she's walking around, where she's moving, she's being watched, right? So she's like actively once more being acted upon, even when she is like trying to uh like not uh, the thing that pops into my brain is like exert her Habesian freedom, right? Like moving. <laughs> I just taught the social contract theorist. So yeah, like I, I get that deeply in, in my brain. We're in Russo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that like, like she's still being acted upon even in the moments where she seems even slightly more active, which I think matches the way that you're understand that you're sort of presenting her. Yeah. I mean, in that she's, sur- she's being surveilled. So yeah, she's, she's boxed in, she doesn't even know she's necessarily as boxed in right. as she is boxed in. And, and of course, Clark, Clark slash Philip is trying to get her out. Um, and he's, and he's also sort of coming up against some of this, um, refusal to move. Yeah. Um, with Elizabeth and Gabriel and especially. Ugh, Gabriel. But I think that Martha, to the extent that she understands how boxed in she is, which I agree is a partial sense of like how iron KG the box is. Um, she's trying to like assert these moments where she can move or like she does is able to like speak in a scenario instead of just sit and wait or sit and be surveilled or whatever. Like I think of the initial confrontation she has with Philip where Philip's like, I had an emergency in Martha's. I had an emergency too. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, she gets the newspaper that Philip wrote this different number on to reach him at and he says, well, I'll need that back in the morning. And she says, why would I expect to keep anything, right? There's these ways in which she is using whatever limited, like, ability to, like, act out or clap back at the mm-hmm. situation that she's in that she is presented with. But those are so minimal, yeah. right? And they're not able to fundamentally alter the circumstances of the situation because, like, bumbling Clark Phillip is just going to do what he's doing with his own conflicted feelings about Martha, his own conflicted feelings about Elizabeth, like, his being shut down by Gabriel and Elizabeth on what to do with Martha and all of that. So like Martha is also encased within the, whatever Philip is encased in, I think is part of it too. I think it's interesting if I'm thinking about most of the shots of Martha, that they're darker, um, that they're closed in um, more and from different angles so that, she's actually being presented as, as kind of, you know, shrinking, um, inside 
the the context that she finds herself, um, even as she is, as you say, John, trying to push back a little bit. Yeah. But I I do think that she is really <clears throat> shown as being you know like smaller and smaller. Yeah, and I think that that matches like the fervor with which she's able to push back, right? Like that it 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 like she gets quieter and quieter also as the episode goes on. Even that statement of like, why would I ever think that I could keep anything? Like, there's a kind of like, she, it's like a kind of resolution to it, and like and a kind of and like a kind of quietness. Whereas like in previous episodes. And, like, previous seasons, Martha's, like, reactions have been just a little bit bigger on her face, in her body. Even if they're not noisy, they're, they're, they, like, establish more of a presence. And, and all of this feels like, like, her presence is kind of being washed out. Yeah. I slightly disagree. And I think this is somewhat like the way that Allison Wright is acting these circumstances out effectively because like I agree that she keeps being washed out and yet like Allison Wright is I think giving Martha as much activity or something as she possibly can given the like structural circumstances and interpersonal circumstances and bureaucratic circumstances that are doing the washing out because like I actually think Martha is why would I expect to keep anything that there's so much like vinegar in the way she, mm-hmm. the way that Allison Wright says that line or the when they're talking on the phone and Martha's in the laundromat like and it's like imagine that you are only semi-aware that you are a spy for the Soviets and you're told to go sit in a laundromat for an hour. And then we know that it takes longer than an hour for Clark to get back to her. Um, and so she can't be loud, loud again, speaking to us like constrained circumstances, but her, um, her, like, tell me that you love me on Tuesday. is just so acidic that I I think there's a lot still there. And that Alison Wright is like really mining, all that she possibly can out of the scenario. I think that's right. I don't, I don't, I think like Alison Wright's like acting of this part and like the like acidic, acerbic, like, uh, presence that she's bringing. I don't think that undercuts the, as a character, Martha being sort of washed out, which is like where I was thinking about, but I agree with you. The performance of this is like incredible. And it's incredible. I think because it's getting quieter and quieter or she's being made to be quieter and quieter and having to like have these really powerful moments in that quietness. Like, so I think those things are, to me, those things are working together. Yeah. And and again, you know, what is the last scene that we see of her in the episode is she's taking Vicod, you know, what is it, Valium? Valium. She's taking Valium because she's having she's having panic attacks. So not only is she getting washed out, but she's actually physically getting subdued um, by drug, you know, by medication um, in order to calm herself down. Um, and and that particular scene where we see her taking the drugs, it's very narrow. It's a side shot. It's you, you don't see very much else. And it, and she looks so despairing. Yeah. And Lily, I mean, I think you're right because that also like points to 
histories of like patriarchal institutions mm. over prescribing right downers to women to like reject their agency or something like yep. that, right? There's better ways to say that, but there's, there's much Martha's, uh, but what the show is doing to Martha is like aping that or kind of reproducing that. Yeah. It's all doom and gloom <laughs> no, for Martha. All no, but the, like the, the point about like the sort of patriarchal institutionalization, prescription, et cetera, et cetera. I think it like, it hammers home once more the, the, both the dynamic between Clark and Martha and also like the way in which she's, she's kind of entrapped in this web of relationships that she herself has not like, doesn't have agency within them. Um, and I think there's something about like taking the pills at the end that is, it serves as another reminder of the, like what happens when you zoom out of this one woman taking these pills is you, is this entire history unfolds, which is like, another way to think about sort of all of this. Yeah. And it's all men who are acting on her, right? Exactly. It's not Elizabeth. It's no. It's Clark and it's Gabriel and it's Adderholt and it's um Stan and Agent Gad who had been there and it's all the men who are the ones who are either surveilling her or boxing mm-hmm. her in or trying to limit what she can do. With Elizabeth being the exception, right? So which raises then the question of like Elizabeth's, um, like femininity, Elizabeth's womanhood in the context of acting as an agent of a patriarchal state and state institutions. And then there's also a way in which like the fraternal web of relations and patriarchal web of relations runs so much deeper because this is also the episode where Stan and Philip Right, reconnect as yeah. bros. Broke right. Up. So like not only are separately each of them boxing Martha in, but like to the knowledge only of Philip, like they are also collectively boxing Martha in, um, more than she could literally possibly ever know. Because yep. like no matter what would happen, it's not like there's a scenario in which she finds out that actually Philip in his persona as normal, like schlubby you know, wimpy guy is Stan's friend. Right. The thing that jumps into my brain and thinking about the, like the Elizabeth of it all, which like takes us back a beat is like that Elizabeth is the one to be like, you know, we're going to protect her, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it's like, one, you're a liar. Two, (laughs) like, (laughs) two, like in there is, I think we can read that, that statement twofold, which is like, there is a kind of like femininity in the, we will protect her, right? Like it at once exerts her like being, it sets her apart from this network of men who are working in different ways to control Martha. And also it puts her as like part and parcel of that, of that network. Right. So it like, it's always doing both of those things. Yeah. Paige is also caught up in some of these similar networks, yeah. right? But, like, she's trying but also is unable to or frustrated by, like, acting out against those circumstances and, like, webs of um, patriarchal institutions, right? Whether it's the state or mm-hmm. the church that are boxing her in. The, the state or the church, both and, you know, <laughs> casual. And but which state are we the, talking about? <laughs> 
Right. What, <laughs> Multiple in episode, states. <laughs> in an episode where, like, they're watching the Reagan speech on, like, serving in the military, right? To your exactly. Point. Elizabeth being like, his cheeks are so red. <laughs> She's not wrong. She's not She's wrong. She's not wrong. <laughs> She's not wrong, but it is just, like, such a funny, it's a funny thing because it's, like, so out of character for Elizabeth. But anyway, back to Paige. And there's an additional paralleling, even structurally, where the episode opens with Martha's confronting as much as she can, giving the circumstances Philip slash Clark, which is paired with Paige as much as she can, given the circumstances confronting Elizabeth in a way that wrong foots both Elizabeth and Philip and, like, sets them off kilter or, like, furthers along their recognition of, like, the disintegrating relationships that they're a part of, I think. Yeah, and I also think that that Paige's um, engagement with Pastor Tim follows in that same mm-hmm. same zone in terms of like she goes there because they tell her she has to and yeah. and so it's again like they propel her into this conversation with pastor tim and he's just like why are you here and and so he's also then you know sort of pushing on her to sort of like what what do you want to get out of this conversation um and what do you think the result is going to be and and so she's, you know, pushing on both on the webs that she's sort of in and she doesn't quite know how to get out of either of them or stand her ground. Well, and I think like the one thing that jumped out at me about the conversation with Pastor Tim in particular, and I think this threads through with like the way that she interacts with Philip and Elizabeth on this stuff is like Paige is like incredibly honest to a fault for someone who's like, sort of being trained as a spy, right? Like, she says to Pastor Tim, well, they told me I have to come here and, like, and make up with you. And that's, like, what prompts him to ask these questions, right? Like, and I think there's something about that honesty, which, and, like, she's honest with, to, she's honest with her parents also about, like, the way she feels about the Matthew, uh, not the Matthew, the, the Henry stuff and the, and the Stan Beeman stuff. And so there's something about her honesty that I think is a tool that I don't know that she's, like, actively trying to push against by being honest, but it does push against these, like, moments of training. And I think that that's, I think that that's sort of something Elizabeth sees in the anxiety that Paige brings because like she's being asked to lie in all these ways. And she just like, however much maybe she's internalized her parents, like aggressive lying. She herself is not always capable of tapping into that. I I think that's one of the things that, that Elizabeth has always seen as a weakness. Yeah. Because Elizabeth wants her to, you know, she wants to train her. She wants her to be, you know, part of the center. But um, I think Elizabeth has always been skeptical about Paige's ability to essentially lie and be insincere. I think the show calls attention to this very dynamic Mm -hmm. in two ways in that conversation between Paige and Pastor Tim, which is a scene I absolutely love because of these kind of like meta textual things that are happening because Paige says, I'm supposed to tell you I forgive you. Like, okay, that's most directed towards Pastor Tim, but isn't that also what her parents are telling her that they need to forgive, that she needs to forgive them as well? So it's like, who is she supposed to forgive and who's telling her? Followed by, she finds it confusing because grownups keep conspiring about like how she should feel and what she should do in response to things. So there's another way in which like she's just vocalizing that, but that is followed immediately by 
um, Paige at least willing to convince herself that the lies she's being told have worked, right? Because, like, I know they believe in something, they love me, they tell me the truth, and so, like, it's okay enough for now. So Paige is, like, both pushing against 100% these exact circumstances, like, and channels of emotion and deceit that you all are identifying and falling for them at precisely the same time in the same conversation, even as the show is having her comment on like our faltering disintegrating relationship with pastor Tim is actually my disintegrating relationship with my parents. Yeah. I think, I think that's absolutely spot on John in terms of, you know, the parallels that are going on and Paige trying to, she's still trying to adjust to her new reality. And she's 15 or 16 Um, years old. Yeah. And she's a high school student. So there's like all this drama back at school too that we never hear about. (laughs) Well, I guess she does have like the weight of the free world in her, like on her shoulders. So I guess maybe the like who stole whose boyfriend in high school is less important. Though I am excited for like, it does feel like Paige and Matthew are like, that feels like something that's coming. Oh, a Daniel Dossier entry. <laughs> a bonus one. <laughs> bonus one. All right. I mean, what do we think about Elizabeth in that moment, in that first conversation between the two of them? Because, okay, it's only now that Elizabeth suggests a break and, like, maybe this has been too much. Like, come on, are you fucking kidding me? And so that, I think, begs the question of, is this Elizabeth actually having a realization that, like, took this much happening to get to? Or is she just continuing to play Paige? Well, I, one, I think it's both and, but uh, to elaborate that a little bit, remember that we're only a few days into this, right? We're not (laughs) that far into page knowing and like, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened, but this is episode five and, and page learned this in episode nine of the last season. So we're like eight, only eight episodes into page knowing, which is like roughly a week and a half, (laughs) like in the time of the show. So it's like. So one, I think like keeping that in mind is like, maybe, maybe Elizabeth has like made a kind of realization. And I do think we sort of see Philip get a little bit through to, to Elizabeth in the previous episode, like at the end of the Glanders nonsense. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I just, I just talked it up. I just chalked it up to Elizabeth still sort of being in a haze from glanders so i i was like is is she actually paying attention to what Paige is saying or is she just exhausted and still recovering because it was it was kind of a hazy scene Mm -hmm. yeah and and i i think the thing about that scene that was confusing to me is like why is she so startled right like that's not that that was confusing to me usually like when Philip or Elizabeth is like making it has some kind of like out of character behavior we can trace why and like maybe the glander stuff is is why but it it seemed like something else well I think it's also I mean the like in world answer is something also along the lines of this is a night when Philip is going to be with Martha so Elizabeth can actually sleep as opposed to half sleep waiting for Philip to get back from whatever mission he's been on. Mm-hmm. So like she's actually asleep as oh, opposed to like Philip, when Philip's usually coming back and she knows it and is like only partially asleep. I think that's also a possible like in world answer. Yeah. I also think that like Elizabeth will never not be working page. Like even before they knew 
that they were going to try to, like, recruit Paige, right? Like, that the center was going to try to recruit her. I think we could also go back to some of that and, like, understand it as Elizabeth working Paige. Because I'm not sure that she knows how to have relationships with anybody that don't involve at least a little bit of working someone. Even her children. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think she works Paige more than she does, um, what's his name? Her son. (laughs) (laughs) Appropriate. Whether that was planned or not, that's lovely. We have a running joke that, like, especially this season, and, like, uh, in general, but, like, where's Henry? And so, it, (laughs) but also, like, Henry's at the Beeman's with his new dad, Stan. (laughs) (laughs) And now his new brother. All the time. He has a new dad and a new brother. How great, how great for Henry and French bread pizza. Exactly. <laughs> and Trivial Pursuit and Rocky Horror. Like, what more could you need? I mean, I, Lily, I think you're right, though, that she's always working Paige more than Henry, but I think it's because they forget Henry's their son. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's part of it. It's like on, on, on Mad Men, there were three Bobbies. So <laughs> there were actually three different actors who played Bobby. <laughs> Was that but like I mean, a that, son on Mad Men? I've that never was, seen yeah, it. Yeah, Don Draper and Draper's son. <laughs> Got it. But Lily, I mean, you say that, and there's even like a structural example, right? Because like Sally is a few years older yeah. than Bobby and is the one who actually becomes a real character and like an integral part of the plot and emotional dynamics of the show. And yeah. like, but not Bobby. Bobby's an nope, afterthought. Bobby. Henry's Bobby just mostly keeps an getting traded out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so there's there's one more, I think, page thing I wanted to mention, and mm-hmm. that is that like, much like Martha has these couple of moments where she just kind of acts out in speech because that's the only thing she has and mm-hmm. like her frustrated agency. We get that from Paige as well twice, right? One is the Elizabeth gets back from her time with young he and is tipsy and is like, let's be a family and let me have this delicious tuna noodle casserole that you made. And Paige is like, I don't want to fucking do this. I'm going upstairs. <laughs> And then it's also, I'm out. <laughs> and then it's also Paige in one of her now classic. I'm gonna pretend I'm asleep uh, when my parents come to check on me, but this, except this time she's like, I talked to Pastor Tim. Everything's fine. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Angsty Paige, man. Well, she's a teenager. Yeah. 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 And. And her, her and parents are, are spies. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and like. How do you balance those things? Rough. <laughs> Real rough. Oh my god. Um do either of you have anything else you wanna you wanna chat about, Paige, or do we maybe move on to Pastor Tim? Oh, Pastor Tim. Pastor Tim. <laughs> I hate Pastor Tim. I as John knows, he looks like a Victorian ghost. <laughs> and, and like something about his wife's hair just like doubled down on the Victorian ghostness. <laughs> See, I just think he looks like the envisioning of what people think white Jesus looked like. So <laughs> Maybe that's why I hate him. At least they usually give white Jesus, like, dark hair instead of this, like, blonde poof quasi-pompadour, but not really. It's like a ragged pompadour I that they that. give. God, Pastor I hate Tim. Pastor Tim. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where do we want to start with Pastor Tim beyond his, like... Either satisfying or unsatisfying looks. <laughs> I mean, like, I think this is a question for Danielle and Lily, for e- either of you. Like, to what extent does he actually buy this story about Father Rivas and the, like, El Salvadorian work that 
the Jennings are doing. I mean, I think not at all, right? But, like, I also think that... I think the thing about Pastor Tim is, like, he's also, like, smarter than the Jennings give him credit for. But the question to me is not whether or not he bought it, but whether or not he's, like, that this is the hill he's going to die on in terms of... Quite literally, you mean? I mean... Listen. I know, we know that's another dream. Here's you hoping. Have, Danielle. <laughs> I'm just, I'm out here predicting deaths that are not happening, and it's like deeply frustrating. We got so close to Pastor Tim's death in this season, and we haven't gotten it yet. And it's, there was an episode named after him. I got my hopes up. He's still alive, Victorian ghosting around the weird rectory. Like, <laughs> it's like all Jesuit, all priests are welcome here. It's like, what even are you? Get out of here. Well, I mean, I think I think it was a good show, shall I say? I think it was yeah. a good show. And and Pastor Tim, you know, if, if he's a pastor, right? If he's if he's, you know, walking in the in the pathway of Christ, then he has to welcome the the guy in and yeah. he has to accept what they're saying. Yeah. Um so whether he believes it or not, that's what he has to show. My question is, like, does Pastor Tim know that if he doesn't get on board with this, like, he's dead? Like, does he know that much? I don't know. Yeah. I I don't think so. Like, I agree that he's way smarter than the Jennings give him credit for (laughs) because they're, you know. Again, uh, the bar is the floor. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't believe in God or religion. So, you know, they're like, who is this guy? (laughs) Exactly. But yet they've got this Jesuit priest buddy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part that makes it the most unbelievable, though. But uh, this is where, like, I think Lily's point about, like, what are Pastor Tim's, like, faith obligations yeah. <laughs> is so relevant because Tim's, Pastor Tim's, like, faith obligations and, like, what it means to be a good priest and his politics are so intricately played and woven together by this ruse that they construct about, like, oh, I knew Oscar Romero. Oh, like, it's the work of the Jennings that saved us from the fucking El Salvadorian death squads. Like, we are doing liberation theology in El Salvador and like these people are keeping us alive. It like hits both the religious and the political, which are not necessarily that separate for pastor Tim. Yeah. So it makes it easier for him to believe it, whether he actually believes it or just wants to believe it, I guess is. Yeah. And they're, and you know, and, and they're smart enough to suss out, like how do, how do we present the most sort of digestible sort of concept? And and they do. I just enjoy this moment of the young pope on the Americans. <laughs> Religious talk. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. Catholics, particularly, after Reed and I both exhumed <laughs> our uh, Catholic youths. Uh, Listen, for I was ten weeks this summer. I was just at a Presbyterian baptism, and it was a whole experience. And like, couldn't understand why there was no communion happening. So anyway. I was like, where are the snacks? (laughs) (laughs) Danielle wanted a body wafer. Um. (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not. I did have, uh, uh, Joel's kids got baptized last weekend. And so I was down in Philly for the baptism and there was this woman next to me. So I'm like there just to be there. Um, And this woman next to me, I'm like not following along with the whatever, the woman liturgy. next to, liturgy, thank you. 
keeps elbowing me to be like, we're on page five or like, we're in, like, him 56. And I'm like, lady, what about my like aggressive black, all black outfit and like unwillingness to engage? Like, is screaming, I'm Christian to you. (laughs) She's like, you know, this is where you're supposed to say something. And I'm like, I'm not going to say. She just, like, kept scowling at me. And it's like, this hymn says Christ 85 times in it. I'm not going to say it. Like, get out of here. (laughs) Turns out she's an Episcopalian minister and was, like, very worried that I wasn't following along. And I'm like, no, I'm following along. I'm just not interested. I'm here for the optics. No, I'm here in support, but, like, I'm not here to be like, oh, I will be, like, your guide in Christ or whatever the hell you're supposed to say. Danielle, I think of you as my buddy Christ, so. (laughs) Just me and George Carlin over here. (laughs) Anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent. Church talk. You've been remarkably on task. Honestly, I think Lily is keeping us on task more than (laughs) usually. Lily, like the we've also been recording most of our episodes at night, which is when we are the loopiest, and we've been doing it intentionally because it's very fun for us to do it at night. Yep, I can see that. But we're a little bit less loopy today. Oh, okay. (laughs) The day before Thanksgiving. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Okay. Should we get into the Stan Philip? Of it all? Yeah. The bromance. Back at it. The, the, the re... Kindling. Rekindling bromance, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm, again, like, I had to remind myself that we are only a couple of days past their, their, like, confrontation, right? Um, and like... We're about two weeks. I did some looking on the wiki. Okay. Like, we're, um... We're at the at the end of the episode. We're like three weeks from the finale of season three. Stan and Philip, sad boys forever. Like loving, true to mine and Robert Smith's hearts. Like let's you know they listen. They missed each other. They <laughs> Philip actually. Well, I, I think so. I think that like Elizabeth's like my dude. We need him. We need him on our side. But also like you need him because like. You need bro energy in your life. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and Stan and Stan needs somebody who's a friend. He needs somebody to love as yeah. a friend because Nina's gone. I mean, like he's experiencing this heartbreak. His wife has left him. Um and you know, and his best friend and he had a spat. So like and and Matthew, his son, is not providing, you know, a lot of emotional support there. So <laughs> I'm laughing because it's like, you're absolutely right. But the first thing that jumped into my brain was he needs someone as a friend who's not Henry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Who like no one else cares about in this entire show. And yet like <laughs> Stan. Wait, this is the end of this conversation. Philip's like, okay, I guess Henry is staying at his second dad's house, <laughs> even though I was supposed to bring him back for dinner. I guess he'll just having French bread pizza over there. And watching Rocky Horror Picture Show, which Picture feels show. like not a, uh, I don't know, not the most uh, responsible thing 
Well, there's there's an interesting Stan parenting arc here where like Stan and I think it's season two, like Sandra says, like, oh, Matthew's going to Rocky Horror Picture Show and they're getting dressed up or whatever, and Stan is like, No, not my son, like what the fuck is happening here? And now it's like, oh, this is normal. So I guess that's a win for our guy. Um <laughs> He's let his hair down. <laughs> But I mean the the like romance of it, the broiness of it is so real because like the strategy that Philip goes for is to simp for Stan is to be like I was such a wimp and I'm sorry and Stan's like no you were an asshole so it's like everything about their the masculine the masculinity dynamics mm-hmm. of their supposed friendship is just so on display there where yeah. like where Philip has to be the nebishy like person who is less masculine than Stan to is like get Stan to have this realm of his life where he feels in charge and like masculine hegemonic masculine do gooder whatever um and like that is what Philip recognizes Stan needs in Philip's quasi apology yeah and I mean but Stan also says like I don't have very many friends I mean like, he says it straight up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if you look around, I'm really lonely, essentially. <laughs> and he had just come from that conversation with Oleg where Oleg tells him about yeah. Nina yeah. and Stan, you know, Stan is completely undone. Um, yeah. and, and he's just like, you know, they told us one day this might happen and, and he can't even say how he feels. Yeah. As witnessed by the long shot of each of them staring straight ahead out the windshield, right? Which is, I just loved that shot composition. Yeah. Stan not being able to articulate his feelings is, like, the epitome of, like, this form of toxic masculinity, the version that the show offers us over and over again, which is, like, what makes the Philip Est stuff Besides the fact that he's, like, a spy and, like, probably shouldn't be going to a weird 80s therapy thing <laughs> where you, like, tell the truth in quotation marks. But it makes the Philip S. stuff, like, interesting in that regard because it's, like, Philip is learning to, like, process in this weird way. And, like, it is all of the things that Stan is incapable of and also all of the reasons why Sandy left Stan and, like, that that... I think that that is actually more of what hits Stan than like Stan thinking that Philip is like sleeping with Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. Which Stan admits to in a way that's yeah. also a diss on Philip, right? Like it's, oh, I knew you wouldn't do anything. You're a good guy, i.e. you're too nice, i.e. you're not enough enough of a man yeah. from Stan's like toxic masculinity perspective totally. is part of that too. So again, Philip understands the masculinity dynamics of this relationship very, very well, even as like it's all a con. But also a genuine friendship because neither of them have any friends. Right. <laughs> No one has any friends, which they comment on with With regards to Henry, but no one, like, except for Stan, funny enough, like, thinks to look look back on themselves. Well, they also comment on it in terms of Elizabeth, right? That that's something that uh, Henry's like, you have friends, right? And Elizabeth's like, I have friends. And it's like, no, you don't. You have agents that you run. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Linda and I have talked about the fact that it, the weird part about Elizabeth is you go through the entire series is she doesn't have friends. And it's, you know, it's such an oddity for a female character to, I mean, she performs friendship, 
yeah. with like Young Hee and, and, and so forth, but that she has no one. Yeah. Well, and for a long time in the series, right, like she had Gabriel, right? That that was her, that was someone who she confided in and someone who she trusted and that, by now, has fallen away. But yeah, Elizabeth having no friends. I mean, she can't have any friends, right? Right. Like, and and <laughs> Philip shouldn't have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> he has no time for friends. He has too many weights yeah, to he, put on. Yeah, he has friends. Like, Sandy is his friend. Like, yeah. actually. Like, in terms of, it's a, to borrow Danielism, right? Like, the, the bar is the floor. Or, <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, the bar is the floor. Um, you know, like, but the don't emotional, act like you don't know it. <laughs> the emotionally real connections between two people that is in some ways most genuine is Philip and Sandy. And like, granted, that's encased in several layers of lies, deceit, and deception. But there is like an actual genuine emotional communication and fulfillment in that relationship that doesn't exist outside of like arguably Philip and Elizabeth at their best moments. Although, you know, again, I think Stan and Philip need each other as friends. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They haven't been playing racquetball. I know. We haven't had their health. We haven't had racquetball in like seasons. Danielle, I'm I will spoil this for you. Racquetball back. Yes. In fact, uh, for reasons that will I will explain to you at a later date. The my friend Jordan, who's going to come on later yeah. in the season, there's a there's a racquetball scene in that episode that I want to get his opinions on. Amazing, amazing! I can't. I like. I literally can't wait. I love racket. I love racquetball. Stan and Philip. <laughs> <laughs> Should we maybe dig into a little bit more of the Philip of it all in this episode? Because we've been talking about Martha and Paige and Elizabeth, Pastor Tim, Stan, but I think like the the looming figure in in almost all of that, right, is Philip. I mean, I think I think Philip is as as John has suggested in the entire episode. There's disintegration going on, yeah, and Philip is watching the disintegration of Martha and the mm-hmm. relationship with Martha and the role that Martha is playing and that he is personally attached to Martha. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I think that's like at the foundation of everything he's doing in this episode that it's like in the back of his mind. Yeah. And I think like the major, I was reflecting on this while I was watching this episode, but I think the major, one of the major differences between Philip and Elizabeth, and there are plenty of them, but like, Philip's attachment to Martha speaks to a, like, Philip's propensity in general to get attached to people, right? Like, that he's not, like, it's not just Martha. He's in some ways, sorry, he's in some ways more attached to Paige, right? Like, there's something more empathetic about Philip Mm -hmm. than Elizabeth, and that empathy, like, leads into attachment in ways that are just like you just don't see with elizabeth there's like a coldness there and so i think your point about like that he's watching like the relationship with martha disintegrate i think he's also aware of the like the sort of ticking timer on her life right like and his active role in that and that that is part of what he's been dealing with like for at least this entire season, but I think last season too. Yeah. 
And he himself becomes, like, disheveled, right? I think of the way that his hair yeah. is in that opening scene with Martha where he's taken the Clark wig off but, like, hasn't redone his hair at all and, in fact, continues to, like, take pins out. Um, and his hair is just, like, not wild everywhere in a Pastor Tim way, but in just, uh, like, it, that's a sign of, like, the emotional turmoil within him or something, just, like, quite literally on his, like, his real hair, right, yeah. which he's showing to Martha now at this point, as opposed to the Clark Yeah, and League. you see that throughout the episode, like, when he's on the phone and the payphone talking to her, his hair is the same way. It's it's disheveled and kind of a mess. Yeah, I hadn't thought to track Philip's hair, but I think you guys are right. The, the, pe- the hair moment that I was thinking about is, like, we don't often get we ought, we have gotten Philip taking the wig off, right? We have gotten Philip in the wig, but in the scene where Hans calls and he has to leave before Martha gets there, we see the like move to put the wig on. And that like, there was something disarming to me about like, about that move as well, that we don't often get that in in this series not just with philip but with elizabeth too we often see them in a wig we've seen them take off wigs but there i think there are fewer places where we see them actually put them on i'm into that point and it's a way in which we then see philip doing extreme competence at his job right like being good at his job so it's the he is putting the armor on, he is putting the persona on, he's putting the capabilities as a spy on, and, 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 and in the process repressing, right, the emotions, the feelings, the disintegration that you two were both speaking to. Yeah. Yeah. But he also, like, he walks by Adderholt's car and, like, doesn't clock it. Not that, like, he, he necessarily should. He hasn't been given any information about the car, but, like... I don't know. There was something about him. You see him in the background and Adderhold doesn't clock him also where I was like, oh, like if it were me and I knew that like the reason why I was getting this call was because like Martha was being watched. Right. Like that stuff is is all information he knows would be on the lookout for who's doing the watching. No. So good at his job most of the time. Not always the best at his job. But it was a quick exit. And yeah. so, and I, I think that may have been part of it. I, I thought that was just like a, a kind of like, oh, they were so close to each other and they didn't realize it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I guess I'm, I'm not willing to give Philip always good at his job yet. <laughs> no, I don't know that he is, but you know, I don't think Adderholtz is as bad as his job as Stan is. So that's oh, 100% absolutely correct. correct. <laughs> but again, the bar is the floor. That is true. <laughs> Most that of the time. True. There's another way that I think it's worth talking about Philip, and that is that Martha's predicament is a uh, like diminishing way to say it, but Martha's predicament like amplifies the alienation he feels from the Elizabeth Gabriel dyad, right? Because both in the parking garage where Gabriel's having his glanders coughing fit and where then at home when he and Elizabeth are talking about whether to get Martha out, like he is very clearly wanting that like, it is time to exfiltrate Martha. It's time to do something. And there's like, I know it's an overused term at this point in pop culture, but like he's being gaslit by Gabriel and Elizabeth about why they're not going to get Martha out yet. Yeah. And, and I think that he's, I think he's frustrated because he's, he's got as much experience with all of this as, 
as the rest of them. And, yeah. and he's just like, this is not going to end well. And now's the time to move. Which maybe brings us to the very final scene of the episode, right? Where <laughs> Philip and Elizabeth have extremely hot sex together. Like after Elizabeth is like, Oh, you're, wife question mark who we're also running who's maybe facing imminent death we're gonna take care of her now let me hike up my skirt and straddle you take care of her (laughs) (laughs) like what is elizabeth doing in that moment because like it, it becomes like genuine passionate sex between the two of them regardless of how it starts right or yeah. am I reading this wrong? No, I think like I think there are a couple of ways to read it. I I was I was of two minds about this. The first was that she I think wants to provide some kind of salve, right? Like to all of the like intensity and whatever. And and then also like I think that there's part of Elizabeth that wants some kind of genuine connection. And this is actually the only way she knows how to how to do that. Um, and I don't think that those things are are like they're they're not necessarily separate. Like they they come together for Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean the expressions I guess that I was seeing on Philip's face was that obviously he was enjoying himself, but also that I think he's torn. Yeah, that that you know he's having this passionate sex with his quasi wife. Um, and, but he's also thinking about Martha. Like he's not actually as distracted as maybe Elizabeth had hoped that he would be. And that he's thinking about the fact that he's had a sexual relationship and a marriage to Martha, Mm. um, whether it's fake or real. And I have a feeling that's also going through his mind. And I think we see all of that, Lily, on Matthew Reese's face. Yeah. Like after they both orgasm and like at the, which is the very last shot of the episode, if I'm remembering, is just like a close up mostly on his face. And we get like a little bit of Elizabeth yeah. in the bottom third of the screen. But like there's the, there's the, the, the joy, the ecstasy and the anguish. Like yeah. those, they're, they're, they're all there. And Matthew Reese is like pulling that off really effectively in that moment. Yeah. Cause I, I don't think he's totally committed to Elizabeth in, in that scene. I think that there's, there's other things going on. I think that that's right. And I think like that, that was what I was thinking about in, in terms of like this being the way that Elizabeth knows how to connect, at least connect with Philip. She feels that there is something pulling him away from her. Right. And like the way that he is so impacted by Martha, which is like, I think just not a, a thing that Elizabeth knows how to like, that's not something that she knows how to like feel in her body. Right. Like, but she knows that it's not great. And also that like, this all only works if they're in it together. I think that's like the other piece of it. Clark Martha relationship is premised on the fact that like they have great sex together, right? Like sex God Clark is a real phenomenon in this show. Was it this season or was it the end of last season where, where Elizabeth like forces forces Philip to embody Clark and essentially like consensually question mark, like take her quite hard. It's yeah. Season two or three somewhere. I forget exactly. So I think that that's there too. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, the final scene comes right. Not too long after 
he's he's talking to Martha on the phone. Yeah. And and he it, you can see by the sag of his shoulders and you know he says I love you and and then he is you know sort of slumping against his face is slumping against the side of the phone booth and Elizabeth is staring at him from the car yeah. mm-hmm. and you know and he's feeling actual emotions and relationship to Martha and I wonder if at that point, Elizabeth is like a little bit jealous of, you know, yeah, Martha and the, the sort of Clark Martha relationship and what he feels for somebody else. I think that that's, I, I, yeah. And I think also like, she doesn't, I think she doesn't know how to feel jealousy, right? Like she doesn't know, we've never seen her like be jealous We because like, we don't see her have these like real emotions all that much. Right. Right. She's quite a stoic character. So again, I think like it it comes back to that. I do have like a silly point that I would like to raise. This seems like the way to end the main discussion, I think. So the silly point is this all starts because Elizabeth's like, okay, like let's, let's eat. Philip's like, you know, Henry's not coming home. And he's like, I'm not hungry. And then she's like, cool, let's fuck. But what's, where's Paige? Paige is just, down the hungry hall. downstairs by herself while her parents are having passionate sex upstairs. Like that's awkward. What about no, Paige? Paige, Paige is doing homework at midnight. Like she always does. <laughs> yeah. I would assume um, that is the case. <laughs> well, it's like, what time is it? I mean, I did have the thought of like, they're be they're having quite loud sex yeah. and like, isn't Paige and Henry like, just down the hall. Well, exactly. Henry's not. Henry's at stands. Henry's at daddy stands. Because <laughs> Philip has just gotten back to be like, oh, Henry's not coming. He's eating French bread pizza and with his new brother and father. <laughs> but his new father is gone, but he's still with his new brother who, like, who knows what that relationship is, which we'll get into in a couple of minutes. Wild. <laughs> Very wild. All right, let's go to the segments. Please. Danielle, what's in the dossier? What do we got? Listen, this is just yet another episode where we are counting down to Martha's death. Okay? Like, the clock is ticking. Time is almost up. Five minutes to midnight here. Like, in a real way. So much so that Elizabeth has to sleep with Philip to get his mind off of it. Um, but also, You mean Elizabeth's will do everything we can for her isn't reassuring to you? Elizabeth's a liar and a spy. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll do everything... We can to protect her, but it's like, we'll do everything we can to protect us by by killing her. Part of me is like, listen, either Pastor Tim or Martha's got to go because both of them are quite large security risks. (laughs) And like, they've decided not to kill Pastor Tim, at least for the time being. So like, Martha, time's up, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, the other thing in the dossier is like the line... (laughs) With the exchange, and they're like, is that guy even a priest? It's like, of course he's not a priest. (laughs) Where did they get this? They picked this dude up from the motel. They've never met him before in his life, in their their lives. Like, why did they roll in with this guy? I mean, I understand, like, for the, like, I understand for the authenticity of it, but it's like, guys, is that guy a priest? No, he's not a fucking priest. Come on. (laughs) Gabriel found him someplace. This is a good time for me to tell you, Lily, that, like, I do not believe that Glanders is even a thing. Okay? (laughs) 
the way Danielle has come out in season four as being like a COVID like Glanders a, a, denier. A, yeah, exactly. She's a Glanders denier. She's Glanders QAnon. Pizzagate um, is Danielle's pers- podcast persona. Listen, they keep being like Glanders could kill the whole world, and and then like. Oh, we're just going to handle it by us, like, staying in this apartment for two days? Like, I'm sorry. Like, he wasn't even that sick. It's, like, not real. Like, Glanders is just the flu. Like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) William went from being, like, this is a code red situation. Like, this is literally going to take out half the population of the, like, D.C., Maryland area. Like, oh, my God. Like, this is crazy. But we're going to put it in an Altoid tin. So it's going (laughs) to, and then you put it in a thermos and a cooler that Sean Hanley, my dad, has had since 1975. Like, this is fake. Glanders is fucking fake. Okay? Okay. Gabriel's fine. (laughs) He's fake coughing. Concerning. Um, And he's got a He's also old. <laughs> Listen, love Frank Langella, but that dude is old in this show. No, we don't love Frank Langella. He got me tooed. Yeah, he did get oh, me tooed. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Mm-hmm. We don't love Frank Langella. Glanders does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, Lily, I'm glad you got to hear that uh, <laughs> dynamic. Um, <laughs> I shall say we nothing. Gloss? <laughs> <laughs> you know Lily. that it's false. <laughs> <laughs> I We're like that all every epidemiologists these days, right? I mean, like every all, episode, we all experience Danielle's Landers denialism <laughs> just ratchets up and up and up. And I can't wait for like what the pinnacle or nadir of this is going to be. Amazing. Amazing. Um, let's go to Gloss. Okay. Lily, I think you have some probably more coherent than Danielle or I Oleg thoughts about oh, this episode. Yeah. I, 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 I felt badly for him and and I also you know I was sort of curious about him sort of being in and out of everything he's like he's in Russia or the Soviet Union he's at the funeral he's talking to people his dad there things are bad they killed Nina um he's upset so his dad basically says well then just go back to your home in the United States so he comes back and he talks to our fancy go back to your fancy clothes yeah your fancy your fancy clothes and your fancy life and so he, he talks to Arcadie and he tells Arcadie that Nina died and they have a whole conversation. And then the next thing he's doing is telling Stan that Nina died. So he's like, you know, he's like Linus running around with his cloud of doom over him. <laughs> and and he's like all over the place. Like it's he's he's kind of like the, the moving of the pieces, but it's Oleg sort of the piece mm. that's moving all the other pieces. Yeah, <laughs> That's a great point, Lily. And it's. Funny that Stan is the only person who meets him at the same emotional mm. level, right? Because his dad is dismissive. Arkady is mad at Nina slash presumably mad at himself as well, but like will not admit to like this being this great tragedy that Nina did it to herself. And so we have some like blaming situations happening there and people are sad for his brother, but no one knows about Nina. So like the only person that he can have any emotional resonance with about Nina is Stan. Yep. Well, and I, I mean, like the thing I said this to John earlier, but like the thing that I was confused by in this episode, and I think rightfully so, right, is when they, when they come to the funeral and I was like, is Nina having a funeral? Like, is this a, like, is that even a thing? Like she was a traitor. That's the whole, 
like premise of her execution and then it's like very clear that it's like it's Oleg's brother's funeral like but that kind of bait and switch for someone like me I was like I was it was jarring and so it makes sense that like mourning these two figures are sort of like moving in and out of each other for Oleg but that Stan is the one that kind of pulls him that Stan meets him where he is with regard to Nina. Like he needs that because the, his parents have met him where he is sort of with regard to the brother. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, he's, he's kind of the bearer of bad news all the way along, but in Stan, they both felt the same way about Nina. Yeah. Which is messed up, right? Like it's messed up that this is (laughs) the thing that like Stan's, bros are like those are some messed up relationships philip's a spy oleg is literally a foreign agent like a spy and his eskimo brother (laughs) i mean borrowed nostalgia for the 80s like that (laughs) no borrowed nostalgia for the early aughts when the league was on (laughs) does that not Hit for no, I I, I, okay. I understand the phrase. Yeah, I didn't know of its origins with the league. Oh, I don't know if its origin by... is with the league, but that I think is like what popularized it more than other uh, things. Okay. Anyway, just here to be crass against your guys' like brilliance. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Long Island. I just I, 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 I felt <laughs> you, you sorry put for her back in Long Island, and she's bringing back Eskimo <laughs> brothers. <laughs> oh my god, this is wrong on like several levels. <laughs> Listen, who knew a noon recording could also get unhinged? (laughs) (laughs) So it's, okay, so nighttime when we're both at home, but any time when we're on Long Island, Danielle, you're on Long Island. A million percent. The energy on Long Island is crass. No argument. (laughs) (laughs) I shall make no comment. the, The, I do love that for Oyeg... I love the show for the way that it makes his brother's funeral a stand-in for Nina's funeral just for him as well. Because, like, for neither his brother or Nina, like, can they name what happened? Can they name why they died? Can they name, like, the fact that it's essentially decisions by the state that made these deaths happen? That, like, there's just this unspoken thing that only Oleg has to deal with and tries to deal with um, in any kind of sort of deeper way. And then also, like, his father just, like, randomly shooting his pistol, like, pulling his pistol out and is like, I'm going to wildly shoot several guns in the air because they wouldn't do a military salute uh, for for my brother. Like, that moment is just out of pocket. And Oleg's hug with his brother, other brother, question mark? Yeah. Um, is, is, was really meaningful, I thought. And like, cause he, I think you can see on Costa Ronan's face when he like kneels down, he holds the dirt, he like feels it between his hands. It's like, you actually get to witness the thought process of, okay, well, this is for Nina and for Yevgeny, my yeah. brother, at both, at both points. Yeah. And then like, and then Oleg is so mad at Arkady yeah. when he goes back. It's like, that's the first, that's a, that's a bromance that is being torn apart. Sunset of being put back together is my favorite bromance is actually Arkady and Oleg, as Danielle knows. Um, he did not want that drink. No. When has he ever no. turned a drink down? Exactly. Sad. Precisely. Precisely. Very sad. Um, should we move on to Henry and Matthew? 
a, a little bit, a, a, a different kind of bromance. Well, this Awkward. is like the little bromance Awkward. that like mirrors this emotional stuntedness of their fa- respective <laughs> yeah. father's bromance, right? But they like pretty quickly like like fall into step with one another, right? Like the initial scene, Matthew is like, "What is this little twerp doing here?" <laughs> And then he's like, all right, well, like, let's, let's get it going. Like, ha ha, I told you, you, he told you it was going to be hot and it's, there's, it's much softer. Yeah. I mean, I think that they, you know, they're acting kind of like adolescent teenage boys ish. And, and Matthew is definitely perplexed as to why Matthew's like taking over his house and, and same. Yeah. And and he's just like, why is Henry here? What's what's going on? Where's the other voice in the house? And and, and, what, and, and like, what, what is this rapport between Henry? This like jokey rapport between yeah. Henry and my dad that Matthew has literally never had with Stan, right? Yeah. So it's like, not only is Henry there, but he has a better like relationship on the service level than Matthew's had in his sixteen years or seventeen years. Well, and yeah. the, the other thing too is that Matthew. Not only is not expecting Henry and, like, is confused by the entire scene, but Henry is, like, not socially aware enough to know or to, like, internalize Matthew's, like, disdain for this. So Matthew is, like, on his heels by Henry being there, and Henry just, like, plows ahead, which is, like, (laughs) it's, like, only a 12-year-old boy could ever do that. (laughs) He's completely oblivious. He's just like, oh, somebody else to play with. Yeah. Let's go. Well, now we're watching a now we got French bread pizza and we're watching a movie together. I'm so hungry. <laughs> French bread pizza is starting to sound good to me. No, 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 no. 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 I'm on Long Island. I'm gonna get real pizza. Okay. I'm gonna get a bagel, let's be honest. Okay. Um the emotional stuntedness, like mirroring the emotional stuntedness of their of their parents is like I think is spot on, but then also just like I was struck by how quickly the awkwardness seems to be like gotten over. Yeah. Um, so, but that's also mirrored in Stan and Philip when yeah. they, you know, make make up. That you know they're like, oh, I'm going to call you an asshole. I'm going to say I'm a wimp, but we love each other. So you know, yeah. to go back to that point, Lily, like the moment when Stan opens the door and the way that Noah Emmerich says Philip. It's like it's as if he's opening the door like to a romantic partner or something. Yep. So like there, yeah. there 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 is something there. Yeah. That's that's real. Then we get Elizabeth's not friend, but who she wishes she would be friends of Young Hee, right? Well, we get just a couple of minutes, just like ninety like ninety seconds, two minutes with Young Hee and Elizabeth in her role as Mary Kay entrepreneur. It was very quick. It makes sense to read it alongside the like Philip Stan, Henry Matthew, like the friendships in this episode. But like, whereas in the last episode, there was like, obviously some work being done in the Elizabeth Young he scene. Here, it just, it, it felt like a little bit of an aside that I couldn't quite wrap my arms around. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is the relationship between Elizabeth and Young he in reality, as opposed to the the fake one. Oh, interesting. Can you say more about that? Well, I think that there is more of a relationship between Elizabeth and Young Hee as friends. Mm. Um, and that it's one of the sort of contorted aspects of 
Elizabeth working young he uh, and also obviously her husband um, as, you know, in, in this kind of zone. Um, and then at the same time that Elizabeth, I think, is kind of liking being friends with young he and that young he is yeah. friends with Elizabeth. Like, yeah, they like each other as friends and they're doing all the friend things. Um, and I think that's that's really what that snippet was, because mm. that's all they're doing there. Yeah, that's a good call. I totally agree with that, Lily. And I think to, to push it even further, there's a way in which Elizabeth's persona that she's playing, disguise that she's playing, like, is all about a lack of family connection in the face of the story that Young He tells about. I forget if it's Young He's parents or grandparents. Yes. And then, like, the broader, like, family network or kinship network that we've seen Elizabeth come into with Young He's family and household. And, like, Elizabeth gives this story, right, to Young He about, well, it's really only my dad, my brother, and me. Um, when, like, in reality, it was only her mom and herself, right? And now there's this, like, you know, there's a limit, there's an upper limit on how familial her family can ever be, right, given the circumstances. Right. Yeah. And, like, I, th- I think that, like, that emphasis on this just further disintegrates Elizabeth's, like, family relationships that, like, that gets called attention to here. In this moment of genuine as possible friendship, to Lily's point. Yeah, because there's she's yeah. not working her. Or, yeah, or it's not clear how she is, and so, and, and so, like, it makes more sense to read it as a more authentic moment. Even if it's not fully authentic, right? Like, it's a more authentic moment than we get from Elizabeth most of the time. Absolutely. And they're cooking together. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like two mm-hmm. women in close proximity to one another in the kitchen cooking and, you know, tasting things together and, and really being in that that kind of intimate space of, of friendship and collaborative production of food for family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that gets us back just like sort of maybe to to put a finer point on it. That gets us back to where we were in the main discussion thinking about masculinity and femininity, right? Like that this is another, this is a moment of quite explicit like cultural femininity, right? That, that again, we don't often get from Elizabeth. And in fact, when she gets home to her own house, right, she has missed the making of the food. And yeah. and that we often are seeing that with Elizabeth, where she's missing the domestic moments in her own family in order to, like, be in these other places as a spy. Yeah. Great calls. John, I feel like the next one is yours, so. Oh, are we doing director hours? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Noah Emmerich is directing this episode. I think he gets one episode a season starting in two or three. And I think there are just some really beautiful shot compositions, framing decisions that were made in this episode, right? So there's, I think kind of the two in, in particular stand out for me, although there's more. Like the two that I think were most important are when Oleg walks into the Residentura and like, the way that they use Costa Ronan's height throughout that entire shot in relationship to other people in relationship to the space of the resident tour was wonderful. The way that Oleg just gets framed with like a partial shot of the gigantic Lenin mural that's in the background was just like, I thought a iconic smooth yeah. right there. When Elizabeth 
and Philip are talking while Elizabeth is folding laundry. Uh, there's a way in which until the very end, they shoot it so that Philip is like just out of focus in the background. Like he is lurking around the background while the camera stays focused on Elizabeth, even a couple of times when Philip is talking and just the like Philip kind of lurking back there, I thought was quite effective. There's the shot of, you know, it's like making fun of like, I don't know, like Rocky and Bullwinkle level spying. There's Philip and Elizabeth, like, leaning together in sync through the doorway of mm-hmm. Paige's bedroom, which I thought was, like, I thought really was brilliantly Scooby-Doo executed. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sco- Scooby-Doo, that's the better, yeah, that's yeah, the better yeah. analogy, for sure. Um, there's the way in which, like, one of the conversations with Paige and her parents is shot a lot from, like, Paige, the camera is at the height of Paige as she's sitting down. There are just a lot of great directorial decisions, I thought, in this episode. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> Listen, we Sorry. love a Noah Emmerich, like, shout-out, so this feels like a good way to do it. Noah Emmerich, good at his job in this episode is what I'm saying. Yeah. Listen, agree. Stan, maybe not. Stan, <laughs> sometimes, but never on the follow-through. I feel like that's the Stan problem. But Noah Emmerich followed through um, in a helpful way. All right, let's go to, can we just like, can we talk about the Gabriel scene? I just. You're, it's your soapbox turn, Daniel. Please have the floor is yours. Gabriel, again, glanders in quotes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it just, it gets Noted. John so easily. Like any. any... S- sends me every time. <laughs> um. We stay thinking Glanders is fake. <laughs> no, but so you get, we get these two minutes of of Gabriel and it's two like. Two minutes of Glanders. The, <laughs> okay. Um, two minutes of Gabriel and it's like the most stilted, like, stop, go interaction and like there it just feels like there's something missing from it and i don't exactly know what it is but it's like at this point elizabeth we know that philip doesn't trust him elizabeth seems to not trust him either i don't trust him to like give a shit about any of these people and also like the all of it's just really awkward so i just wanted to like put uh like underline the awkwardness of that scene and be frustrated by it <laughs> No, I think it, as as interactions between Philip, Elizabeth, and Gabriel go, it is definitely one of the most awkward interactions yeah. because usually it's a lot more fluid and graceful. Yes. Um, and this was extremely stilted. Yeah, and I wonder if part I, – I guess, like, the thing that I'm thinking about is that as Elizabeth starts to pull away from Gabriel, like, maybe that is part of what makes it stilted. Because there's always a certain degree of awkwardness between Gabriel and Philip, but it feels like, at least until this point, there isn't really that awkwardness with Elizabeth. And it's it's striking that this is an awkward scene with Gabriel that involves Elizabeth. And I think, like, narratively in terms of the story, that makes sense. But it was hard to watch. Yeah. 
I also found Gabriel's moment where he talks about William so telling about, like, how Gabriel runs his agents, because Philip, I think it's Philip, questions whether William is still going to even keep doing this after what happened with the glanders, Mm -hmm. not in air quotes. And, (laughs) um, you know, his advice is that William is volatile but a patriot. Okay, fine. Standard, whatever. But it's the next line where... The instruction is basically to nag William to get him to act and to do something. It's like, tell him in 25 years he's never done anything important. Yeah. To get him to whatever the next setup is going to be. Well, and you could see him saying that to them, right? Like... I don't know. But it's 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 usually praise for them, right? He motivates them by praise and is trying to motivate William by negging. No, I, absolutely. But I, I guess, like, where my brain went was, like, you could see a scenario where praise stops working for Philip and Elizabeth because they are, like, starting – they're tepid on, on him. And then the negging starts. And then that just, like – that leads to an even further disintegration. I guess, like, yeah. I actually – I disagree because I think that Gabriel is, like – William is a wimp and we can bully him around. Whereas like, if you tried to run that game on Philip and Elizabeth, they would be like, fuck you. We're never listening to you again. We're getting you sent back to Moscow by yeah. old man. Like they would go so like angry that I don't think it would work. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought, and I think that, he knows that. Yeah. I thought that he was actually kind of explaining his true perspective on William. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I'm a Gabriel skeptic. <laughs> Glander skeptic, Gabriel skeptic. It all runs All G's. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Uh, maybe a little bit of Hans to lighten the Oh, Hans. Yeah. <laughs> totally forgot about Hans there for a moment. <laughs> I also did. I was like, oh, yeah, Hans, we're back. As John put in the notes, our favorite economist. <laughs> our favorite South African economist. Yeah. <laughs> Who's, like, trying to be good at his job, but maybe isn't yeah. there yet. He doesn't have the confidence. But there's an interesting mirror to Philip there. Like, there's an earlier scene in this in this season where Elizabeth is questioning Philip's certitude. And he's like, it was just a feeling. I don't know for sure. It was just a feeling. Yeah. It was just how I felt. Yes. So there's, I think, a mirroring there with Hans yes. being like, I think I saw a car. Of course, we know Hans is correct. Philip was wrong yeah. in that instance. Here, Hans is correct. So this is, that was what was notable to me. Well, and also the, like, the taking in the teaching moment of it all, which, like, Philip is clearly, he, he wants Hans to be certain, but like knows that he isn't. And I think like ultimately reminds himself that like this dude is still learning. Right. And like, I wonder too, the, the, the mirror with Philip and Hans is, is important, but I think there's also like a, a Hans and Paige thing happening where it's like Mm -hmm. Paige is also like not quite there yet. And so, like, the patience required to train is kind of important here. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it preempting something later. No comment. No comment. I know. I know. No comment from you guys. I know. Plenty of comments (laughs) about my glanders. uh... (laughs) No comment. (laughs) 
Oh my god. Okay. I think we have gotten to the end of gloss. I've got one more gloss oh. to throw in there. Yeah. It's not on the list. Um, so there's one more interesting parallel that's drawn in this episode, which is I think like quite quite like hidden, but there, and that is we get this line from Oleg's dad that he tried to get yeah. Oleg's brother Yevgeny out, but Yevgeny wanted to stay. I.e., that's the exact scenario that Misha is in. Yep. Right? Like, Gabriel yeah. said, I tried to get Misha out, but Misha wanted to stay and fight. So, like, just to note that that's there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't caught that parallel. I was thinking about the the sort of, like, brother and Nina, para, like, parallel yeah. and divergence. But I think you're right about that. Yeah. All right. Sorry for interrupting, Daniel. No. Just segue. Listen, I love a sneak attack in Gloss. I think it's good. Um, let's go to Bard Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. I still don't know what this means. <laughs> Lily's been on enough to know, to, for us to know that she doesn't know what it means. So we're just lurching towards the end of the series when you tell me. Maybe. <laughs> oh my God. I will stop doing this podcast right now if you don't, if you do not promise to tell me at the end of the series. I will literally. I promise. I will tell you. I will the literally seconds. Like, oh my god, I can't believe how visceral a reaction I just had to that. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> okay, well, now we're in the 80s. Uh, take it away, John. Oh, just like the, the El Salvador part. I mean, one of the many, like, horrid things that the Reagan administration did was supporting underwriting, giving tacit or less than tacit, or more than tacit consent to the death squads in El Salvador and also in Guatemala, uh, right? And we get, like, the murder of Oscar Romero yeah. mentioned here. Um, when I was in undergrad in Denver, like, there were some ties between, like, lefty Jesuits in Denver and oh. Oscar Romero. So, like, there's a lot of, like, remembrances of Oscar Romero around the circles I traveled in. I was an undergrad um, at University of Denver. So, like, that just, like, really was, like, like I think a notable thing. And, you know, a, a, the show calling attention to all the dirty, shady shit that Reagan did in the 80s, which I appreciate when that happens. I'll take it. Uh, on a lighter note, the the, <laughs> <laughs> the food. <laughs> I really got John. <laughs> Um, we've already talked at length about French bread pizza. Yeah. I also want to bring up, uh, the tuna noodle casserole, which was like, oh my God, certainly disgusting, a th- disgusting, a thing that my mom made all the time. Um, and John knows this, but like, I didn't know that tuna fish was fish for a long time <laughs> until like I was too old. It's in the name. Okay. <laughs> But I stopped eating, I stopped eating tuna fish, but like my mom would always make tuna noodle casserole. This is like, this is ingrained in my brain. It's like an 80s dish. I Lily, did you ever say, make it? I, I, I have made tuna noodle casserole <laughs> and I, and I make it, um, in a way that you probably wouldn't make that response to it. Um, because I like, you know, saute mushrooms and rosemary and asparagus oh. and stuff like that. Well, I know that you're a good cook. I just, <laughs> Tuna fish. I, I don't eat any fish. So okay. like that it's, that's the reason I'm making that. Not that, not the idea of you making it, but like just the like, ugh. anyway, <laughs> my mother was not a big, um, she was a very good cook. She's, she was a very good cook, but she didn't make a lot of the kind of eighties dishes. Yeah. Eighties. Yeah. 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 So you know, aside from meatloaf occasionally, like we weren't eating tuna noodle casserole. 
Well, and I feel like my my mom and my my grandmother also like good cooks, but like tuna noodle casserole feels like one of the only big eighties things that like that we ate. Because most of the time we were, that's like the one that really sticks out. I don't know what else is like an 80s dish that like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. John, did you have to eat tuna noodle casserole? No. So, I mean, I didn't become a vegetarian until my mid-20s, but um, my mom and sister both don't like fish. They both eat meat, but do not like fish. So, like, never had tuna noodle casserole. (laughs) But, like, I think it would have been in the rotation had everyone eaten fish. Yeah, and I think it's just like it's an it's one of those like easy dishes to make with relatively cheap ingredients that you could yeah. make for a lot of people, which is like always what the kind of food that they were that people were making in in our house and it was like food that people could make if like I was at swim practice, I could eat it later, right? Like that's right. always the 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 dishes of Or if you were getting wine drunk with the agent that you were running um while making Korean food. <laughs> also very true. Um, after making fun of Elizabeth for not being able to eat the Korean food, which was my, I think my favorite scene of the previous episode. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. There's lots of wine in this episode. Martha's Martha just really like <laughs> Martha's mixing wine and Valium at this point. Yeah. It's like that seems very eighties to me. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean like to speak to the wine of it all, like the drunk driving <laughs> feels very eighties. Yeah. Like Elizabeth literally drives home drunk. So like that's the I, I don't have nostalgia for that, but it's it's in here. It's borrowed. There's a layer of remove. we okay. Yeah. Um, I think that the needle drop in this episode is awesome. Uh, under pressure, but John, you've got some feelings about it. It's just so obvious. Um, and like it's a great song, even if it's one of the worst Bowie songs, because Bowie's awesome. But like it's just so obvious and like annoys me to an annoying extent for me. Obvious because the song being used in this way is obvious. Because it's like, oh, all our characters are feeling under pressure, so this is the song we're gonna play. It's like, come on, we you 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 are capable of much more subtlety than this. True. At the same time, it felt apt. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And there, ha- there has been a lot of really interesting and good use of music in the Americans all along and continues throughout the rest of the series. But I, I was just like, oh, this is sort of cute. And for the line I've been waiting an hour and a half to offer you all, but has been planned the whole time, it's like the better option clearly is the song Disintegration off the album Disintegration by The Cure. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll give you that, but like I didn't I liked this needle drop because this needle drop felt is like a more mainstream needle drop, which is what yeah. I appreciate, which is what John bucks up against <laughs> historically. <laughs> got me. I, mean, like, I got nothing. Um, okay, uh, next we've got the like Stan and Adderall basically like judging Martha for the Kama Sutra. <laughs> It's so awkward, but seems so indicative of, like, a certain kind of, like, bureaucratic masculinity slash 80s dudeness, like, slash 90s slash 2000s slash 2010s dudeness that... Which is also, like, so wild because Adderall does actually want to date her, right? So, like, that's, like, what makes it even worse. Yeah. I I mean... (laughs) 
Lily's face is very funny in this moment. It's just, it's just like once, once again, there is sexual harassment in the FBI, yeah. Yeah. like depicted on this show, yeah. yes. right? I think that is exactly right. And, I, and I lots tr- of things we're not actually nostalgic for in this and, part of yeah. nostalgia. And I always try to give Adderholt a, a wide berth because, like, he's a black man in a white institution in the 1980s, yeah. and he's smart. Yeah, and generally yeah. does job well. Yeah. So you know, I kind of, I kind of like, okay, you're a competent black man. Um, let's <laughs> let's go with that image. But um, and then he says, you know, something weird like that, and I was just like, oh, really? But it, <laughs> but it's also right, like the pressure to assimilate into a certain kind of masculinity that's that is true. coded as a white, like to be a white bro masculinity, like you gotta talk shit about women and their sex lives, right? Yeah, and also, like, I think there are, like, I think that John is the generous way to read it, and the way that I'm more inclined to read it is, like, at the end of the day, masculinity does a lot of work, right? And so, like, maybe we read it generously, like, he's being assimilated into this white masculinity, or maybe there is something, like... There doesn't have to be something redeeming about Adderholt's, like willingness to like put this bullshit oh yeah yeah i don't find no i know that you mean at all but but i think like both of those readings are are possible and we're sad for him exactly yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to shout out martha's earrings that she has on at the beginning of the episode which were cool looking they're like big chunky but very like nice like two-thirds hoops I didn't even clock them, so I appreciate it. Yeah, neither did I. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about Elizabeth's shirt with the bow that's sort of That's exactly what I was thinking about. And I had a shirt like that. I had a shirt (laughs) like that. Well, it's just like, I think it has the most shoulder pads that we've seen Elizabeth wear in this entire series. That's true. She doesn't engage in the shoulder pads as much. Or they're not as egregious as, like, 80s wear often is, or, like, as I remember, like, my mom or my grandmother's clothes having a lot of shoulder pads. This this one, I felt like it had more. She does when she's dressed up as somebody else. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But this was her not as someone else, so that was, I think, what was... Because usually her fits are so great. But there was something striking about the shoulder pads in this one. And so we also have the address that they're watching from Regan about, like, the need to serve America and join the military so that he can launch more dirty wars. Apparently, this took place on March 23rd, 1983, the Americans Wiki tells us. Okay. So okay. that is, like, part of how we get the the date The range timeline. Of, yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I thought Elizabeth's, like, <laughs> he's got red cheeks was very funny. Um, and she, like we said before, is not wrong about that. Um, and it, it like is an interesting comment for a lot of reasons, but like, I think we wouldn't have heard a comment like that from Elizabeth around Paige a, a season or two ago. So like, that was kind of interesting that she's like more open about her criticism, even if the criticism is just like silly. Um, yeah. Cause I think there was an asking like, where's Henry? Yeah. Before she made the comment. Yeah. Exactly. He's too busy playing Commodore? I don't know. Is that the system? I don't know. I don't know my video game history. He's yearning for his fake daddy. (laughs) 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 
Okay. I also want to, I wanted to shout out, we talked about Oleg before, but I wanted to shout out, like, him rolling up to the Residentura with, like, a straight-up suitcase felt very 80s to me, where, like, now you would, like, go home, you would put your stuff down, da 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 but, like, the transportation is not as easy in the 80s, and so there's something about just, like, rolling in with all his stuff, like, straight off the plane from Russia felt very 80s. And the suitcase itself also... Also. Super 80s. <laughs> it was a real well, nice. <laughs> def- definitely Peace. Soviet 80s, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, fun- functional utilitarian. Yeah. We also get the mention of the film Max Dugan Returns, um, which I have not seen. Apparently, it's Matthew Broderick's first film role. Lily, do you know this film at all? Um, I knew the name, but I, and maybe I saw it in the 80s, <laughs> but I don't remember seeing it. Fair. So, beyond that, I can't really tell you. So according to the Americans wiki, the basic plot of this movie is that an English teacher and a struggling single mother are connected to one another. The single mother's life is disrupted when the father that abandoned her as a child reappears. Donald Sutherland is also in this. Marsha Mason and Jason Robards. Yeah, all all favorites of a mine. Banger cast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking about Donald Sutherland playing the Giles character in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie very recently while I was in Philly. <laughs> we talked about Buffy the Vampire the Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie on this podcast multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> it's cuz it's a favorite of mine. Also, we were talking last night um, at my parents, we were talking last night about Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which is another, like, I've got, or I've got borrowed nostalgia for the, for the remembered 90s with Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. But I think that also brings us to the end of borrowed nostalgia. Sure does. All right. Minor character of the week. We have very few choices in this episode. But, uh, John, do you want to let us know who this sure. one is? We have, here the air quotes are appropriate, quote-unquote, Father Rivas, <laughs> played by David Ansuelo, who is great at playing this priest or fake priest, however we want to understand him, and, like, clearly does a number on Pastor Tim and Alice, as we discussed. Is that guy even a priest? <laughs> it's, like, maybe my favorite line of the entire series so far. <laughs> And it's there's a just, good it's one. like it's so out of pocket. It's like, <laughs> what? Oh my God. I love it. All right. Um, I, I just want to say that, like, so David Ansuelo, the actor, like, gets the tone down as if he were a, uh, like, lefty yeah. El Salvadorian Jesuit. Like, the, the, the volume, the tone, the cadence, he just, like, has pat. So, worth the shout. Yep. Yeah. Does a great job. Is convincing enough that Philip and Elizabeth are not sure if he's playing a role or not. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's go to the cave. Um, Lily's been brief. Lily's been brief. The seasons. The cave. <laughs> the cave, which is all Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> Fittingly. So Lily has chosen a new uh, dialogue for us. One that we haven't dipped into. Uh, thus far, and maybe you have not read. Maybe you have not ever read in our lives. Maybe two of us on this call theorists. haven't really read it. Maybe other theorists only teach this and don't teach the Republic, which we think is wild. 
but and maybe maybe somebody read it but a very long time ago (laughs) (laughs) this is we like we have been enjoying this season uh like the cave in this season and and playing around in play-doh in part because sometimes we're like oh yeah yeah yeah, let's do book five of the republic and then we end up with a quote which neither of us remembered was like in book five or like it's it doesn't feel relevant to the stuff that we know about book five so don't worry you're in good company of like well we got to make this up on the fly Okay, so we're in the Gorgias, which is uh, a new dialogue for us, as <laughs> literally, sure <is>. literally new. <laughs> <laughs> literally new. Um, I'm going to scroll, and Lily, you're just going to tell me when to stop. Stop. Okay, give me a letter. L. Oh, <laughs> give me a letter from A to E. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, D. Okay, I am at 454D. Socrates says, very well. And also, something you call to be convinced. Gorgias. Yes, there is. Socrates. Now, do you think that to have learned and learning are the same as to be convinced and conviction or different? Gorgias. I certainly suppose that they're different, Socrates. Socrates. You suppose rightly. This is how you can tell if someone asked you, is there such a thing as true and false conviction, Gorgias? You'd say, yes, I'm sure. Yes. Well, now, is there such a thing as true and false knowledge, Gorgias? Not at all. So it's clear that they are not the same. So we've got convincing, conviction, knowledge, persuasion, all sort of up in the air for us. Uh, in this text, what is this? What do? We, how do we want to connect this to this episode of the Americans? I'll defer to Lily. I've got ideas, but I want to defer to Lily as the gorgeous knower here on this podcast. Um, well, I mean, it's about rhetoric. I know that that's what that dialogue is about. Um, but I think that the the sort of question of convincing people, I think, is also where we are with Martha. Yeah. In so many ways that she's convincing herself of things and people are trying to convince her of things and her understanding of what knowledge is true and sort of where she's sort of put aside what she understands to be truth um, and what she knows and trying to weave it together in ways that it's not what she thinks it is, I think is a lot of what we're seeing in this episode. That's where I'm going to go. I like that direction, Lee, and I think that I would offer something similar, but with regards to Paige rather Mm. than Martha, like I'm thinking about what does Paige consider to be conviction and what does Paige consider to be knowledge and how is the rhetoric quite literally that Elizabeth, Philip, Pastor Tim are using, right, convey different things about knowledge or conviction and like how does language, how do ideas, how does the representation of reality like shape what Paige understands to be conviction vis-a-vis knowledge is I think central to some of like the underlying epistemological like f- like uh fraughtness of her situation. I'll I like that. all of that. Yeah. And I think Paige and Martha both are sort of the characters that we might like think around this question of conviction and knowledge and, and also the like 
shady border between them, which Socrates is trying to delineate like a very clean and clear break. And, and I think what we're pointing out is that the break is not as clear, uh, surprise as Socrates wants to, to, to tell us. <laughs> I love it. I yeah. love being in the Gorgias. I have some bonus cave content for the oh two my of God. you. Ooh, give it to us. So when I was looking up a PDF of the Gorgias earlier, I discovered that there is an AI shopping like support company to like help your online shops called Gorgias Run in Paris, founded in 2015 to like help automate like so they were Glossier, Brewmate, Steve Madden, Polly Pocket, huh. uh like these companies hire Gorgeous to help, like, AI run their fucking online stores. Mm-hmm. So that's the world we live in. All right. That is the Gorgeous from the sophists to AI. Yeah. <laughs> Do we think that Gorgeous, the company, is in on the joke? I hope they are. That's, <laughs> whether or not I think they are, I hope they are. Because, like, it would be funny. <laughs> yeah, it would be. But I wonder if it's a French word that I don't know. Yeah, that's also totally possible. On their About Us page, I couldn't find the origin of the term. Oh, okay. Let's see. Sorry. I Trust me, I really want to know <laughs> at this moment, but alas. No, when you search Gorgias French, it just comes up with, um, just comes up with uh, French translations of the dialogue. <laughs> so Maybe they're in on it. I'll, I'll bring them to Quebec next time. I okay. Go. Amazing. So we've also got a couple of theory ships. So uh, Lily, I can't remember if you have been on for when we have been doing this, but it's basically us assigning readings to characters in the show. Um, and so <laughs> another running joke this season is everyone's got to read, <laughs> everyone's got to read Plato. Um, but we're not going to do Plato this time, though. I do think Adderholt reading Discipline and Punish wouldn't be the worst thing in the world or like, no, that's the one I would give him. Um, but the one, the real, the real one that I'm interested in is I just taught Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And he has this quote in there about like from Augustine about like unjust laws being no laws at all. And I think we need to give a little bit of King quoting Augustine to Pastor Tim to remind him of like, what's up, you know? So that's my theory ship. King quoting Augustine to Pastor Tim. And we might as well throw a little Augustine in there too. It can't hurt for a pastor to read some Augustine. And it's sort of... Are we sure about that? Well, and it, like, I don't know, there's a nice, like, map between Plato and Augustine, right? So, like, I feel like it it brings the the cave and the theory ship full circle. John, what's your theory ship? Um, I'm going to assign some Deleuze to Joe and Joel, the... Uh, showrunners of the Americans because this is I think an episode in which there is quite a quite a bit of like chaos and deterritorialization mm. and like and 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 anding of like difference and repetition to lows and like flux and the virtual and stuff like that. And I think that to Lily's kind of point about this being an episode where lots of pieces are being moved around and like the question of what act, what will be actualized out of all of the like possibilities that are potentialities that are established by the things moving. Um, I think raises some Deleuze questions. 
We'll take it. Okay. That's what I got. <laughs> and then, like, there's some other, like, people writing about chaos and stuff that I read when I was working on my dissertation <laughs> 10 years ago that I've totally forgotten and blocked out of my <laughs> That's brain. Okay. So I think the Deleuze we're not, is we're not gonna We're not going to try to go any fine. further than Deleuze. I've got another one. Um, I want to give a little bit of Spinoza to Martha. We started the episode, we started our podcast episode talking about how Martha is like so often acted upon in this episode. And so I think like a little bit of Spinoza from the ethics on like, uh, affecting and be, and to be affected as like a way to think about subjectivity, um, is I think might be interesting and illuminating for Martha to read. Great. I'm I'm going with Richard the Third. Ooh, <sighs> yeah. Just thinking about this play. Tell us and, why. And well, I think part of it is is the Martha and Paige mm-hmm. situation where you have you know the mother and the daughter who are all being operated on by people who are duplicitous. Um, and half the people who are duplicitous don't even know necessarily that they're as duplicitous as they are. Um, now I'm not necessarily sure who would be Richard the third in all of this. Hmm. Um, but the sort of instability of the regime that is sort of going on in the course of Richard the third with all of the women basically having themselves boxed in more and more as, as the play progresses, and as they, you know, get kicked off the earth one by one, um, that I, I think that that's what I would do. I, I love yeah. that. So I, had, I, especially because I just rewatched the episode of The Crown where Prince Charles does, I think it's Richard III, if I remember correctly, the episode where he goes to Wales and learns a tiny bit of Welsh and stuff. So I love the, I love the Richard III assigning here. I'm honestly surprised that you watched The Crown. <laughs> I shouldn't. No, we talked about The Crown. No, I know. I, I shouldn't be, but like I had forgotten and now I am back. I'm thinking about watching The Crown, so. Yeah, I, like I, we haven't, we haven't sort of quite jumped into the new season, but. We're, we're going to do yeah, it I soon. Watch the new season yet either. The crown feels like just enough prestige TV for me, but not too much. Little prestige is a treat. Yeah. yeah. Just as a treat, some, you know, love a little, a little history. And I just like love <laughs> good British actors. Like that's oh, the yeah. thing that I have realized that like, I actually just love all like there's so many British actors, like Emma Corrin. They're like one of my favorite actors. I've been watching um, murder at the end of the world. Yeah. I just, yeah, I, I'm excited to start. That. I think that you'll yeah, like it. I have not yet watched it. Yeah. I think that you'll like Great. it. This is maybe a place where we can overlap in prestige TV when I usually I'm like, I'm not watching that. it. So I think that we've come to the end of this episode, which at once is oh, exciting my. and also makes me sad. <laughs> um lily thank you so much for being here with us we always love having you on uh, like it is always my pleasure it is american's expert yeah (laughs) and we will honestly more of an american's expert than either danielle i mean i'm i'm conspiracy theorizing (laughs) over here and talking about glanders i'm definitely not an american's expert and i would not claim to be Well, my, my written chapter on the Americans was recently published. So oh. in their eight, in the book, the eighties resurrected by edited by Randy laced. 
Oh my God. Okay. Well, we'll have to take a look at, I mean, we've seen your chapter, but we'll take a look at the volume because it does feel relevant to it, it, yeah. our general a lot, lives. A lot in it. And we'll link to it in the yeah, show notes. Thank exactly. you. Classic thank podcast phrase. Exactly. What a, what, how official. Okay. So thank you to Lily. Thanks as always to producer Amy and just, I guess, another plug. By the time this gets released, producer Amy's book. When that happens, question mark. Listen. We're not asking questions about it, but producer Amy's uh, first book will will have been published, The Price of Humanity by Amy Schiller. So people should pick that up as well, and we'll link that in the show notes too. Up next in two weeks, we'll have American Season 4, Episode 6, The Rat. And thank you, as always, for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. It's a podcast. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at Not Great Books TV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Bless FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.